0: Good morning, Renewal Mainline, good morning morning. to worship with you all this morning. Uh, My name is Luke Wu, I am the assistant pastor here, and as Mike mentioned, we are well on our way uh, praying for uh, some senior pastor candidates, so if you are able, please come and join us as we pray for not only for our church, but also these candidates. We're excited uh, to see who the Lord has in store for us. Uh, The past few weeks, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we started with the Beatitudes. And after the Beatitudes, we saw that not only do the Beatitudes represent who the people are like in the kingdom of God, but they also bring this light of the gospel to the people around them. We saw that we are to be like salt and the light. And now today, Jesus, he continues on the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts to talk about the law. And now to introduce how Jesus talks about the law, I want to share with you an experience that I've had before I came to this church. When I came to this church, uh, in our denomination, the PCA, what pastors have to do is they have to undergo uh, a strict series of examinations. uh, First, written exams, and after that, oral exams to a committee. And after all those are passed, you have to stand in front of all the pastors in the region. And for however long they want... They have the liberty of asking you any question that they want to ask you. And so I stood, I passed my first initial exams, and I stood in front of all of these seasoned veteran pastors. And I just remember, just from the beginning, there was this one wildly old man in the corner just looking at me with a very sharp eye. And I just could tell he was going to ask something hard. And believe it or not, he raised his hand, he stood up, and he asked this. He says, can you answer me this question? Can we pick up sticks on the Sabbath? What's your answer? (laughs) And I looked at him the way that you're looking at me now, and my question was, what do you mean? And I saw that he was asking because he was referencing an Old Testament passage, Numbers 15, and in Numbers 15, God gives a very specific command to the Israelites that you're not to work on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, if you do any kind of work, even picking up sticks, which was meant to make fire, which is considered work, then you are violating God's command. So in Numbers 15, a man goes outside on the Sabbath, picks up sticks, he's found picking up sticks, and he is literally stoned to death. So this pastor was asking, if we went outside today, picked up sticks, would we die? And if not, why don't we die like they did in the Old Testament? Wily old man. The reason I bring up that story is because we have this idea about the Old Testament, especially the laws, this misconception, especially those who believe and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We view certain portions of the Old Testament, especially the laws, and we have a very hard time understanding what God is getting at. Sometimes we scratch our heads and reread some of these things and go, Really? God is, what are you trying to say? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27. You shall not cut your sideburns in a rounded manner, nor your beard. (laughs) Only straight cut. If you don't, then you violate God's laws. Exodus chapter 34, verse 26. When you eat lamb, you cannot cook it in the milk of its mother because that is violating God's law, and you scratch your head, really, God? What are you trying to say here? Literally, we can't pick up sticks. Literally, we can't have a number two fade on our sideburns. Literally, we can't eat goat that's cooked in its mother's milk, and it seems so primitive, doesn't it? It seems so ancient, and so we see that a lot of these don't apply to us today. We quickly skim past these parts of the Old Testament, and furthermore, as Christians, we know that we're justified Not by the law, but by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, in Christ. And therefore, we see the law in a very negative light, a very negative portrayal of the law, because all it does, it condemns us, doesn't it? And so we have a tendency to favor the the New Testament. We love the New Testament. We love the topics of love and forgiveness, and we believe that those topics don't exist in the Old. We think the Old Testament It's all about God's strict laws, his prohibitions, all of the things he's trying to enforce. Stories about God destroying these pagan nations. And and we have this idea that God in the Old Testament is, is a very vengeful, very wrathful, very wily old God in the Old Testament. We like the New Testament. It's not a very common thing. It happened all throughout church history, for example. Back in the second century, there was a man, this scholar, by the name of Marcion. And he read the Bible just like you and I did. And he read things like this. And he said, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem like the God that I want. So he came out with a new translation. And in his translation, he took out all of the Old Testament. Not only that, anywhere in the New Testament where it talked about the Old Testament, he took those portions out. Imagine how thin his Bible was. And actually, a lot of people followed him. Because they had a hard time reconciling this God of the old and the new. Are they two different gods? And what about these laws? They just seem so weird and ancient. How are we to abide by them? Though today we don't rip out sections of the Bible, we do very similar things. We do what I call uh, Bible grocery shopping, where you just read through Scripture and just pick out the passages that we like and we hold on to, and we don't pay much attention to some of these laws. But we know, as we see in Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is used for, for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That means any part of the law, any part of the prophets, any part of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all useful, it is all inspired words of God. And so today, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts to expound on some of these Old Testament laws. He gives a clear picture of how we are to understand some of these Old Testament laws. And in the coming weeks, we're going to tackle some of these Old Testament laws and topics such as lust, divorce, charity, and so forth. But before he tackles these topics, he first gives us these guidelines on how we are to interpret these Old Testament laws. And that's going to give us a, a, a guide, a way to read the Old Testament so that it's applicable for our lives today. So to do that, we have three headings this morning. Number one, what the law reveals, what the Old Testament law reveals. Number two, what the law does. What does the law do to us? What does it reveal? And Then what does it do to us? And finally, what the law points to what the law points to, what it reveals, what it does, and what it points to. So with that in mind, let's ask the Lord for his help as we study this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you weak. We come to you as a people in need of your word. God, we don't even know how spiritually hungry we are. But God, when we come into your presence, we see, Lord, that there's so much more to this life than simply the weekend, than simply these leisure activities. But Lord, there is Christ, the Lord and creator of the universe. God, as we dive into your word this morning, help us to dive into who you are. And in turn, may we be changed, forever changed as your people. God, make your word come alive in our hearts. And may it take effect tomorrow as we live out your calling. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So number one, what the law reveals. So to tackle these questions, the first thing we have to understand about how rules and laws work is that there's always more to the law than what the law simply says. Laws are never meant to be just laws. Rules are never just laws rules. But whenever a law is given, there is a purpose behind the law, a principle that is being communicated. Because the law, it's not simply a a prohibition of things you can't do. It's not simply enforcing things you have to do, but it is also meant to provide how you are about to go about your life, how you are to live, the conduct, the manner in which you are to Go and live your life. Laws are never just laws. Rules are never just rules. There's always a deeper principle behind them. In fact, if you understand the principles behind the law, there are times where you don't even have to explicitly know what the law says. Let me give an example. In Korea, where I'm from, you can go there with an American driver's license, and you can exchange that for a temporary Korean driver's license, and you can drive around just as you do here in the States. Now, as you drive, the first thing you're going to realize is that there are a couple of differences. And one difference is there are no stop signs in Korea, believe it or not, not even one. And so you would wonder, how do these cars, especially with such a congested city like Seoul, how can these cars drive around without crashing into one another, especially at these intersections? And you come to see that though there is no explicit law of stop signs, no traffic violation given, there is a principle that the people abide by, that even though it's not spelled out, that they all know the principle that when you approach an intersection that you do not want to be unwise and just blow through it, but you want to see if there are any cars coming. If there's a car that gets to that intersection before you do, you give them the right of way. And that principle is ingrained as people drive around. There's no need for an explicit law. So if you know the principle behind the law, you don't need to know the explicit law. All to say, there's more to the law than just the law. You have to know the principle, the guidelines, the, well, the, what it's trying to communicate behind the laws. Let me give you another example. Think about what a parent does when they raise their kids, instructing them the way they are to act. Let's take an example like sharing. Sharing your toys. One rule that parents give their child is that whenever they're playing with others, it is important to share the toys that they have. If they have one toy, you play with the toy, and after a while, you share it with your friend. If you have two toys, you have one, and you give the other toy to your friend. And they want to teach them how to share. But now what's really behind the parent's intention? What's really behind this law, this rule of toy sharing it? Isn't it the principle of generosity? that we're trying to get across. More than simply sharing the toy, aren't we trying to teach them a conduct, a way of generosity? Remember, rules are never just rules. The rule of toy sharing is not just about toy sharing, but it's about teaching the child a way of life, a principle, a way to view other people, a way to view your own possessions, to never hoard your things, to experience the joy of sharing those things with another. It's a principle of generosity. You see, because if your child, say that he grows up and becomes very stellar at sharing his toys with his friends, but then he he steals toys from other classmates to share with his friends, has he really understood the law? No. But technically, he's obeying what you said. He's sharing with his friends, but he's stealing at the same time. The principle is completely missed, right? Right? Laws are never just laws. Rules are never just rules. There is a principle behind these laws. So likewise, in the Old Testament, the laws which come from Genesis all throughout Deuteronomy, if you count them, there are 613 commandments, 248 of them positive, meaning what you have to do, and 365 of them negative, telling them what they can't do. Now, you have to think, why does God give these laws? What is God's intent? What is the principle? You can't surely think that God is arbitrarily giving these laws just for the sake of the laws, for example. Let's take the book of Leviticus, which records many of these laws. In Leviticus chapter 11, it gives a list of all of these unclean animals. And amongst them, he says, you must not eat pigs why? Because pigs have a cloven foot. It's, it's, split, it's split in the middle, and therefore it is called unclean. Now, does God have a personal hatred towards pigs? Does he hate pork and bacon and food that has a high sodium content? Is there something about that that God hates? No. But there's something behind the law. What he's trying to say is, amongst the animals, he's considering some of them unclean, But I want you, as the people of God, to be a pure people, to be set apart from the nations around you. So by the way that you eat, the things that you eat, that's going to set you apart. So what God is communicating, the principle, is purity, consecration. Be holy as I'm holy. uh, God says it very clearly in that chapter. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with these kinds of animals, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I'm holy. It's not just about pigs. That's simply the rule, but the principle behind it. There's so much more to it, to live in light of God's purity, consecrated and holy. One commentator writes, God has never merely wanted people to to obey laws. What he really wants is for them to be holy as he is, to value what he values. And the purpose of these Old Testament laws is to reveal God's character, who God is. It shows us the things that God values. It tells us how God operates, what is important to him, the kind of God that he is. And so we, as his people, through these laws, we get to know who God is how God thinks, what he deems important, to value what he values. If we're still stuck on this idea about pigs then we completely miss the point of the law and you're missing out on some great food, on top of that, there's more to the law than the law. The important thing is about being pure before God and being perfect like your Father in heaven is, the one who expressed himself through these laws. The laws reveal the character of God. That's why the psalmist can say things in Psalm 119, I delight in your commandments. I love them. Have you ever wondered how you can say something like that? Who here would just naturally say, I love rules? I love prohibition. I love restriction. No one naturally says that. How come the psalmist says that? It's because he knows that the laws are not just laws, but they are an expression of God. What he's essentially saying is, I love God because through these laws, I see who God is. That's why he can say things like, I love your commandments more than gold because he sees God in them, God's holiness, God's purity. God's justice. To love the law is to love the character of God because the law is an expression of who God is. For example, when God says in the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, is to think that God is really, really after this, this economic justice? Yes. But do you think that's all he cares about? Isn't it the fact that when you steal... You're telling God, God, you messed up in my life. You placed me in a lower tax bracket. I deserve to be up here. So I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to embezzle money. I'm going to take from this person because I deserve it. Aren't you essentially saying to God, God, you messed up. You are unwise in how you allocated the funds of this world. You are challenging God's wisdom. You're challenging God's authority. There's much more to stealing than just stealing. Laws are never just laws. Rules are never just rules. When we see these laws, we have to see them more than just laws for an ancient people, for an ancient culture, and an ancient time. But we have to see what is God communicating because then we're going to see there's a quality, a quality to this law that we're missing out on. And this takes us to our second point. Not only what does the law reveal, what does the law do to us? We saw that the law reveals God's character, and now let's see what it does to His people. Now consider the people to whom that Jesus is speaking to. In the crowds, when He's giving the Sermon on the Mount, there, there's a mixed group, an eclectic group, people who are poor, high religious officials, scribes, Pharisees, the outcast. And though they all come from different backgrounds, the one commonality that they have is they were all Jewish. And as Jewish people, the thing that they can hold on to together is the fact that they upheld, they saw highly the Old Testament laws. They respected it very much. Now, all the way up to this point, Jesus, he's been going around performing these miracles, teaching all of these new teachings, the gospel, the forgiveness that we have, God's mercy and God's love, and they're hearing all of these new teachings from Jesus and saying, we've never heard anything like this. Jesus, are you teaching something very new here? What about all of the Old Testament passages and the laws? What are we to do with that? Jesus, are you throwing away all the Old Testament? And Jesus, he says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the entire Old Testament. He says, but I have come to fulfill them, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus saying, no way, I am upholding. I'm actually fulfilling the Old Testament. I'm not giving a brand new teaching. I'm fulfilling it. And up to this point, all the Jewish people, they'll say, yes, amen, yes, we have to uphold the law, uphold the Old Testament. But then the bombshell comes in verse 20 when he says, speaking about this law, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this was shocking because the idea was that they had was if you obeyed these Old Testament laws, the more you obeyed them, the better standing you had with God For every law that you obeyed, you would find a little bit more favor from God. And in their minds, the people who had the best relationship with God were the Pharisees, were the scribes, and they were the most righteous amongst them. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to exceed them. And they're thinking, how is that possible? Because the Pharisees from a young age, they would spend countless and countless of hours studying the Old Testament laws. Not only would they study the the written laws, which I said, there were 613 of them, but throughout its history, they would add on to these laws. They would elaborate on these laws. They would have what we call the oral tradition of the law, which the Jewish religion still utilizes today. And if you think the Old Testament was thick, what they did was they put all the oral tradition in a book. Do you know how many pages that book is, the Mishnah? You think your Bible is thick? That Mishnah is 800 pages long. And they'll spend hours and hours studying the Mishnah, the oral law, and memorizing them. And these are the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about. And he says, you have to exceed their righteousness, their adherence to the law. And so it would be a bombshell. Just to give an example of what this Mishnah contains earlier, I said that God does not want people to work on Sabbath. And so he gives the law about picking up sticks. What the Jewish Pharisees did was they took that thought, and in the Mishnah, they elaborated on it. They said, say that on the Sabbath, you cook a meal, and you want it to stay warm. And so to make it stay warm, you want to cover it with something. And in the Mishnah, it says, you're allowed to cover it with feathers or with a blanket, but you cannot cover it with any grass or herbs. Why? Because if you put grass or herbs in it, there is the chance that you might start a new fire. And starting a new fire is considered work. Therefore, you're violating the Sabbath commandment. And they would have countless and countless of these elaborations. They would expand on the law. And this is how well, how strictly they adhered to the law. And Jesus is saying, you have to be better than those guys. Sounds very hopeless to us. What the answer is when Jesus asks, can you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, we have the answer, and the answer is very clearly, we can't. If it's concerning the strict external adherence to the law, you can't. But what Jesus is talking about here, it's not merely an external adherence to the law, but something so much more. Remember, there's more to than just the law, more to than just strict adherence. That's why Paul, who was a Pharisee in the New Testament, he writes in Philippians, before he came to Christ, he said that he was a Pharisee who was blameless to the law. He followed all of them, but after having Christ, now he considers all of them rubbish. Whatever gain he had, he counts them as laws for the sake of Christ, because the law is more than the simple following of the law, there's much more to that. Remember, laws are not just laws, rules are not just rules. And what the Pharisees missed was that more than the external obedience, there is a righteousness that comes about, not by the quality or uh, quantity of how many of these laws you can abide by, but the quality of your righteousness there is a very big difference between the quantity of your righteousness versus the quality of your righteousness and jesus says the quality of your righteousness needs to far exceed the pharisees and the law will do that in two ways and here i want to explain how this law helps us today first when the law comes when you see all of these commandments what the law does it acts as a mirror it acts like a mirror. Remember, the law is an expression of God's character. Now, with God's character in place, now the law shows you just how far you are from God's standard. It shows you just how perfect God is, and the law tells you by how far you are from how God wants us to be, His perfect standard. Because even if you adhere to all 600 or some laws, no one can claim perfection the way that God is perfect. The standard is perfection. Jesus makes it very clear in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so when the law first comes into our lives, it comes to show you, comes as a mirror to show you just how far off the mark you are. These are the ways you are supposed to reflect God's character. These are the ways you are supposed to obey them perfectly without blemish, always with the right motivation, with the right intent, the right means, every second of your life. And what the law does then is get us to say, there's no way I can come close to this. There's no way I can come close to what the law demands. And it leaves us in distraught, in despair over your sin. It leaves you what? It leaves you poor in spirit. It leaves you in mourning over your sins. It leaves you hungry for righteousness as we studied in the Beatitudes. Because the law as a mirror, it shows you no matter how hard you try, you will never achieve the perfection the law demands. But when you realize this, that is when you are on the path to righteousness. The more you see how far off you are, That's the closer you will be to God. John Calvin, he says this, the person who is utterly cast down, the person who is overwhelmed by the awareness of his sins and his calamity, his nakedness and his disgrace, that person has advanced farthest in his knowledge of himself and knowledge of who God is. The most spiritual people that I know, the most mature Christians I know, they're the ones who believe that they are the most wretched sinners in the world. They're the ones who see that there's so much that they need to repent for. It's not simply, God, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for this, but God, I'm sorry for this false sense of humility that I'm portraying every time I talk to someone. I'm sorry for this spiritual arrogance that I have that when I read my scripture and someone else tells me that they didn't, I feel a little better about myself. And they go deeper and deeper because they see more of God's character and they see more of their sins. And they spent countless of hours repenting over how sinful they are. They know themselves the best according to God's law. And after you see that, you come to hunger for Christ, for his righteousness. As Paul says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God and is by faith. And now when the law comes as a mirror, and when you come to depend on Christ's righteousness, you come to serve the law in a totally different way. Totally different way. You go back to the law and you obey and you serve the law, but it's categorically different from before you came to know Christ. Because this time, It's not as if you're trying to obey the law because you want to earn a better standing with God. It's not in order to earn God's favor. But you want to obey the law because you already have a perfect righteousness from Jesus Christ. And you are obeying the law because you're motivated to be like God, not to earn anything from Him, but simply as the God who saved you. You want to know Him deeply and more. You want to be like Him, driven by wanting to be holy just as your father is holy. The motivations, the desires, the affections, they have changed completely. This is what God means when he says, Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The quality of your righteousness is far better than the quantity of the Pharisees' righteousness because the righteousness that you bring forth is not greater in number but the quality is perfect because it is a righteousness of christ now when you have that you go back to the law you serve god in a totally different way completely new affections paul uses this metaphor before christ came into your life you obey the law as if it was your slave master and you are under its bondage But now with Christ, you have a new spouse, no longer a master, because you have a new marriage, you have a new purpose. You want to please him, to enjoy him. And so now, your obedience, now it's intensely relational. Because now you do it with a person in mind, Jesus Christ. And on the outside, the Pharisee and you, you can be doing the same things, worship, tithing. The same external actions of obedience, scripture reading, acts of kindness, but the difference is in your heart, as a true follower of Jesus Christ, there is a new affection towards Jesus instead of simply trying to satisfy some requirements. It's very important for us to understand the difference, and let me illustrate it this way. This new affection, for example, let's say that there was a young, single guy in his late 20s, okay? And this was before this young, single guy met the girl of his dreams, and let's just say this girl's name's Joanna, okay? And there's this young, dashing bachelor in his late 20s, single. Now, before Joanna came into this young man's life, he had a sense of urgency that as he was approaching 30 that he needed to get married, because most of his friends were starting to get married. He was starting to see that his prime days were passing by. And not to mention this young single guy, he was a pastor. And the thing that he would hear all the time was, in ministry, it would be so much better to have a partner. You can cry together when ministry gets hard. You can support one another. It would be better if you were married. Furthermore, this young pastor wanted to do served in overseas missions and every time he would go overseas he would ask the missionaries over there he would ask the christians over there give me that one piece of advice that you would give me or him give that one piece of advice you would give to this person and what they would say is every single time the best advice i could give you is get married before you come the best advice and so succumbing to all of this pressure and all of these desires He starts to put a little bit more care and attention to the way he dresses. He starts to shape up his hair with wax. He starts to watch his diet a little bit more. He starts going to the gym, being careful with his words around women, understanding to be gentle and kind with his words. When people try to set him up, he starts to be open to the idea. Now, at this point, why did this young single guy do these things? Why did he dress better, go to the gym? Why did he speak kindly? It was so that he could find a spouse, wasn't it? The motivation was in order to woo someone, literally, and to have a spouse for him. (laughs) And he didn't know who this person would be. He had no idea the face of his future spouse. It was a faceless person. This kind of motivation is like the motivation of the Pharisees, a motivation that's driven by in order to get With the hope of obtaining just like they did in trying to obtain god's righteousness there was no face in the picture but then in god's timing he finally meets the girl of his dreams he marries this girl now as a married man his affections his motivations are completely different he does the same things they still go on dates. He tries to watch his figure. He tries not to dress like a slob. He tries to be wise and kind with his words. But now, he's doing it not in order to get a spouse. He already has a lovely spouse. But the motivation is now because he has a spouse, he now wants to please her. He wants to serve her by not smelling like B.O. every day by taking showers. He wants to please her by taking her out on dates. There's an actual face now that he has in mind when he's doing these things. And when this person becomes unfit, lazy, and say that he gains a few extra pounds, will he lose his marriage? I hope not. <laughs> will his marriage get annulled? No. I'm sorry to say, till death do you part. But now he wants to obey the law, the law of of being a presentable guy, the law of being a gentleman to his wife, not in order to obtain, not with the hopes of getting her, but because he already has her. Now he has her in mind. That is the fundamental difference. And for Christians, already having the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that can never be taken away from, from you no matter how many pounds of sin you gain no matter how bigger you get in your waistline of that gluttony comfort it can't be taken away and when you obey the law you no longer do it and try to obtain even a little bit whenever we read scripture Monday through Saturday and we come into church Sunday feeling a little bit better about ourselves he's saying do away with that Your relationship with God has never changed. But now you have a person in mind when you crack open that Bible. You're not reading it to to get something. God, I want to feel better about myself today. I want to be on a spiritual high. No, you want to read about someone. There's a face. New affections. New motivations. That's how the law affects the Christian. And that kind of righteousness, that kind of affection far exceeds the Pharisees. Final point what the law points to. What the law points to. Okay, so so far, just to recap, we saw that the law expresses, it reveals God's character. And second point, we saw what the law does it acts like a mirror to us, shows us just how far we are from God's perfection, and then it provides new affections in light of Christ's righteousness. But now let's see what the law points to. And Jesus very clearly answers that. It's a very clear answer. He says, all of them point to me, for I have not come to abolish the laws, but to fulfill them. And he says that everything of the law will be accomplished, not even an iota or a dot of the law will be ignored. And that word, iota, is the the same letter, I, in the Greek, And for them, it was the smallest letter. In actuality, Jesus, he was speaking Aramaic. So what he was actually referring to was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is the yod, the smallest stroke that you could have in the Hebrew language. And he says, not even a small, single stroke of that yod will pass by. Every single one of them, of those laws, will be fulfilled. And that was a grand statement. He was saying that to the scrutiny to which that he's going to make sure that all of these laws pass, that's the scrutiny to which that we're going to be tested upon in our righteousness. And for us to just gauge just the power and the strength of this statement, what I did was I'm showing you guys a picture. Uh, It's it's the Isaiah scroll. It's It's the best preserved Old Testament manuscript that we have in existence. And you can see just how long that is. Now, a few days ago, I spent a good amount of time trying to look for a yod, the smallest stroke, so that you guys can see what Jesus is talking about. So if you zoom in a little bit, okay, you can see the very words of God, right? Zoom in a little bit more, and I finally found one. Next, this is what it looks like. It looks like literally an apostrophe, and you have to find that in this tethered scroll. And so if you see the next slide, there it is. There's a yod. There's about 65,000 yodes in the Old Testament, and Jesus is saying not even one of these will be abolished. They will be upheld to the scrutiny to which that I'm going to make sure that even this single yod is going to stand firm by the end of the world. He's also going to use that kind of scrutiny to us to make sure, have you obeyed those? Is your righteousness better than that? For every thought, every action, every sin that we've done is going to be tested against the law I have not come to abolish the law that is the scrutiny to which God will ensure that the law will pass and likewise it will be the scrutiny with which we will be measured and Jesus now gives an example he says you have heard in the sixth commandment you shall not murder and why don't we murder because according to God's will God's character it's not just the murder But the fact that God created all people in His image, what God is communicating is that we need to uphold life. There is sanctity to life because every person is made in the image of God. So when you murder, not only are you taking someone's life, you are offending God's creation, God's perfect creation that He first created in Adam. You're doing a lot more than just murder. And not only are we supposed to stop from murdering, we're supposed to help life flourish promote the life of another that's why we are to love our neighbor like we love ourselves there's more to the law than the law more to the rule than the rule and jesus takes it farther he says even if you have a thought of hatred towards your brother even if you call that person fool which if you literally translated it it means blockhead it doesn't sound that harsh right sounds like a very charlie brown type of saying you blockhead What's the harm in that? And he says, each time you call somebody a blockhead, you will be liable to the hells of fire. The scrutiny to which God will make sure that you live up to this standard. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we may say something like, well, I never murdered anyone. I remember somebody saying this to a pastor, and this pastor said, okay, let's backtrack for a minute. Murder, if you define it on its bare terms, it means to to wipe somebody away from existence. Would you agree? And this person said yes. It means living a life without that person existing. And then he asked this question, is there anyone right now that you try to avoid when you see them? is there anyone that if you never saw them again in your life it wouldn't make a difference to you you would actually be happy if you never saw that person in your mind isn't it as if you've already murdered him by living as if he does not exist isn't it the same kind of heart and that's what jesus is getting at the only difference is the external act because you and i with the right condition the right situation with the right upbringing, we are no different from the murderer. And Jesus is saying, to the scrutiny to which that I will uphold these laws, that is the kind of scrutiny I will look into your heart to see, are you perfect like your father is perfect? That's the will of God, God's perfect holiness. That is what is revealed in God's law. I want to end with this. When God reveals his character in these laws, not only does he get across his holiness, his perfection, but in the laws themselves, we see grace and forgiveness and mercy. Because the same Heavenly Father knows that you are utterly hopeless unless he intervenes. And he saves us from our inability to live out to the scrutiny of these laws. The laws express, yes, the holiness, the perfection of God, but it also, in the very same law, express God's mercy, his forgiveness, the gospel, Jesus Christ in the law. It means that all throughout the Old Testament, the laws were never just laws. The rules were never just simply rules, but there was something more to it. And in the laws themselves, they pointed to Jesus Christ. The laws were a shadow, a shadow of the substance of Christ. Let's go back in time. Let's pretend that we went back in time to the Israelites. And let's go back into that time and imagine that it was the Day of Atonement. And you and I, we have the knowledge of Christ's coming. And we see clearly in the Old Testament laws that when they are to come to God, that they need to have a sacrifice. And so you're back there. You're in the temple courtyard, and you're approaching God's presence as you approach God's temple. But as you get closer, one of the guards says, Stop. You can't go any farther because of your sin. In the inner sanctuary, that's where God exists. You cannot take any step farther. Give me your sacrifice. And the sacrifice God in his law tells us, you have to sacrifice an unblemished bull. And this bull, you saved up many, many weeks of your salary to pay for this unblemished bull. And now we know because of Christ, when you give that bull, when you see that unblemished bull, you see Christ because Christ, he was pure. He was without sin, just the way that this bull was without any blemish you give it to the high priest and the high priest he takes those steps enters the inner sanctuary And when you see that high priest who do we see we see Jesus Christ because it is he who mediates our relationship with God we can't get any closer someone else needs to stand in our place because we are sinners God is perfect we need a mediator so when they saw the high priest they see Jesus Christ who mediates our relationship with God. It is Jesus who says, here is the sacrifice. And when that high priest slaughters the bull, the bull doesn't make any sound because Christ himself did not make any sound when he was led to the slaughter. When you see the blood being shed in that temple, whose blood is that? Is it not the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that we're going to partake this morning, the blood that was shed on Calvary? Christ is in the law, and after you observe those things, you see now you can have access to God through that mediation, and after that, the priest, he takes two goats, sacrifices one goat, and the other goat, they make it leave the city, leave the camp, that's why we get that term, scapegoat, because it leaves, and that represents how sin is going to be removed from the presence of God. As far as this goat runs, that's how far your sins are. As far as east is from the west. And you see this goat being kicked out of the camp. And who do we see there? We see Jesus Christ, who was kicked out of Jerusalem, who was crucified on the hill outside where the rubbish and the trash heaps were. And we see Christ even in that goal. In the laws, not only do we see God's perfection, we see grace and mercy in the gospel. We see Christ himself. How many instances of hatred have you had towards your brother? How many have I had and harbored against people in my life? From that cashier at the store who seems to be so slow to that person driving by in the wrong lane, to my spouse, to the people whom I love, to people even in this church, any instance of thoughts, any instance of impatience, any time that I'm thinking, what a spiritual blockhead. It's going to be held up. How many thousands of times have I violated the principle behind God's law? From an instance of hatred to Impure motives? How many of those countless instances can God bring up when the heavens and earth finally pass away? Probably instances that I'm not aware of. But the one thing that we can be sure of is that though we ourselves cannot stand against the charge of God's law, not even one yod, not even one iota, we know someone who can because in the law we see Christ and we hold on to Christ. So now when we serve Him, We don't deal with a strict motivation of trying to please God because we already know that we can approach God confidently. Now you can live out God's law, even doing the smallest act of kindness, even giving a cup of water in Jesus' name, but now this time you have a face. His name is Jesus. You're doing it for Him. And so every time you obey God's law, don't do it apart from Jesus. In those laws, in your obedience, you serve. I told the teachers, every time you're patient with a child today, you see Christ. because Christ himself says, do not prohibit the children from coming to me, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And in that, you see Christ. When you put away these chairs, not only are you just doing it, but you're seeing how Christ served and gave up his life for us. Christ is in the law. And we have the law. And it is not a bad, negative thing. But it's a thing that God gives us so that we can be nourished just like we're going to be nourished today. So let us not have a negative portrayal, but let us welcome Christ in all the obediences that we do. Let's pray. Just so as the praise team comes up, and before we partake, the Lord's table, I want to give you guys just a few seconds. I'm just ask you to consider